0: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Tallulah. And Tallulah was in a toxic relationship with an abusive skipper. It's a story of adventure bribes, the fear of failure, the silent treatment, infidelity, and the loss of Identity. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Tallulah. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thank you for being here with us today. And we're going to hear your story today, which is a story that starts off with psychological abuse. And it starts off with emotional abuse, and eventually it does get physical. It gets very scary toward the end, and you have to, you know, fight for your life. And for those who are listening, there's a trigger warning in this episode. There's animal abuse in the story. There's physical abuse in the story, and you know, Tallulah was someone who really didn't have any issues to begin with in her life, and. She got really twisted around, so for everyone who's ever been in that boat, uh, this is a really validating story for you in that sense because a lot of our stories, people have some stuff kind of going in that gets exploited, and whereas Tallulah does, a lot of it really happens within the relationship, and you'll hear everything, so I really want to thank Tallulah uh, for being here, and now, without further ado, Tallulah, the floor is now yours.
1: A very short overview of my upbringing. I grew up in a very small town in North Alabama. I had three brothers and they were like my three big mean bodyguards. (laughs) They were very protective of of me. We were all athletes and um, both my parents were athletes. And so we all played sports and um, we all kind of grew up in this kind of team atmosphere and uh, supporting each other. And helping each other. And even though my parents divorced when I was about seven and they both remarried, it was, it was not a traumatic or a scarring divorce. I always felt surrounded by love. Our family was extremely close. I had a lot of friends. I was involved in tons of activities. I was very outgoing and extroverted and I worked really hard at everything I participated in. My work ethic was very solid. And I think that came from from playing sports and working hard to reach goals and things like that. Um, but anything that I did, I wanted to be the best. I was very competitive. My entire family was, and still are, we're competitive, just paying, playing Pictionary or playing, you know, gin rummy or something. We're just competitive. And, and my parents always taught us that we could try anything we wanted to try, but we could never quit. So if we started something, we needed to finish it. And, um, and just an example, my brother decided he wanted to play soccer, and halfway through, he hated it and wanted to quit, but they made him finish out the season. You know, and so it was it was a great life lesson to grow up with those kind of solid values and solid um, – I, I was always very driven and very goal-oriented. And so that's important to know for the story. So fast forward, I went to college, got a degree. I always wanted to be a reporter, and so I became a reporter and had a good career as a journalist. Um, and
0: Growing up, how are your yeah. relationships? What is your view on relationships during that yeah, time? Um, I,
1: I I've always been someone who who likes to be in a relationship rather than a casual dater. and so I always had a boyfriend or nobody, you know. And um, I was always very loyal. And, uh, um, and And I'm glad you asked that question because the idea of cheating. Was always, even when I was in high school, and you know, to cheat meant to look at somebody else or talk to somebody else or kiss somebody else or something like that. I mean, it was always a deal breaker for me. That's it, we're done, no second chances. And I was, uh, grew up that way. And, um, even just, you know, I had, um, I've always had long relationships. Um, and I, I actually was married for 16 years. And uh, my husband and I divorced, but it was very amicable. Um, We began co-parenting our two children and the kids were doing very well. I was a single mom, which of course presents some challenges, but I was happy and I was thriving. Um, After the divorce, I dated a man and we were together for three years. So again, another long relationship. And he cheated on me and I kicked him to the curb. I mean, again, it was a deal breaker. I just had a zero tolerance policy for TV. and this, this becomes important to the story
0: <laughs> so at this time, you have these values you yes. have uh you know if someone breaks x, you do this, you have boundaries, so going in, going into this relationship, yes, you have solid boundaries. Uh, but now, at this point, you have gone through two different relationships. Were you We're married trying. the second time?
1: No, it was not married. Okay, you I, weren't I married the married second
0: time, time, but you've had these yeah, two. You've, yeah. you've had these two long-term relationships. Are right. you feeling good about yourself? How do you now view yourself? And do you have a Disneyfication view of love?
1: Um. You know, it's a very good question. Uh, I think that after the cheating episode, I I, that hit me hard. That was hard to recover from. And and, um, I remember sitting um, at the at the kitchen table with my mom, and I was telling her about it, and how upset I was. And she said, "You deserve to be with a man who will honor you." And I always remembered that word, honor.
2: But uh, I didn't listen carefully enough because soon after that, I met uh, what, who I call the skipper. And
1: I called him this because he was a sailor and because I can't say his name. Uh, and I wouldn't say his name on the show, but I can't even give him a, a real human name. Uh, and this was um, kind of a therapeutic tactic that my therapist used um, later maybe I'm jumping ahead too far, but, um, she told me, you know, I couldn't say his name without cringing or crying. And I had 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 an actual physical reaction when I would say his name. So she suggested I give him a label. And so instead, and so of course I called him the jackass for a very long time, but, uh, the skipper became a little bit more appropriate, uh, term for him. So uh, but at that time that I met him and you asked about the Disney vacation, uh, fairy tale thing, uh, I think the answer is yes. And I'll explain why. So I, at that time I had a lot of confidence. I had a lot of friends. I had a successful career. I had a fantastic relationships with my family. I even had a really solid relationship with my ex-husband and we were just really crushing the co-parenting thing you know we were killing it we were doing great with the co-parenting we were very amicable we got along we went to the kids activities together we were we were doing really well um i had always and again i had always had these long term uh relationships we already talked about that but um if you asked anyone to describe me i think they would always use they would use the word competitive but they would also use the word loyal And in fact, that's how my ex-husband describes me. He always says she's the most loyal person I've ever known. Even though our relationship didn't work out, he still considers me a loyal person. And for your ex-husband to say that, that's pretty strong. But I also think that that quality, I think it's a quality to be loyal. But I think that also, in the end, became my downfall. So I met the skipper while I was traveling for business in Germany. And it's important to know that he's German and I'm American. And, uh, I was interviewing and we were in the same industry. And so I was interviewing him for an article, uh, that I was writing and I was in Germany for a week and we spent a lot of time together during that week because he was my main source for the story. And we had a lot of mutual respect for each other, uh, because again, we were in the same industry and we both were experts in our own right and that sort of thing. And so we were able to talk about work, but there was also a
2: mutual attraction. Um, but I tried to say professional. Uh, I left after that week and I wrote
1: the story and, uh, he began immediately to pursue me very aggressively with text messages, phone calls. Uh, he started t- giving me promises of all these worldwide travel adventures. And it's important to know that he was, he was very attractive. He was tall, handsome. He had these beautiful aquamarine eyes. And of course he was very charming, charismatic. And I was very attracted to the fact that he was so worldly, and he was so well-traveled, and he spoke eight languages, and he loved adventure, and he was smart, and I just all the things together just uh, were very alluring. And he talked often about all the places he wanted to take me, and I had always wanted to travel the world. And so it was all very alluring. Uh, But I still resisted at, at first, but finally, after about a month of this... Uh, I kind of caved in, and um within that month, he told me that he loved me and that he wanted to sail with me forever and Those were his words and uh he sailing was his greatest passion, so I took this as just the greatest com- compliment that he would want to to do his greatest passion you know and be with me for you know forever and um uh, at that point, our relationship was one hundred percent virtual, but um At that point, we decided to meet in New York, and that's when we finally spent time together in person, and and I fell hard. Um, And just to explain further, he was uh, 10 years younger than me, and his two kids were 10 years younger than my children, and I really fell in love with his family. I fell in love with his kids. I fell in love with his mother. I fell in love with his sister, and I love them all very, very much, and this is important to know. But, um, where were you so meeting them? I met them in Germany. Okay. And at this time we were traveling a lot. I mean, I was going to Germany, he was coming to the U S and then we were also meeting in other places. And so we had, we had this great obstacle of, we had this horrible seven hour time difference. You know, when I woke up in the morning, he was already in his afternoon and he went to bed about four o'clock in my day. And so when I went to bed, he was already long asleep, but, you know, so there were only, uh, a A small window of opportunity to talk during the day, and then there was this five thousand mile physical distance, and then of course we also had culture clashes, and that was a big obstacle too. I was from Alabama, he was from Germany, and so those obstacles, of course, were there. And uh, but he would whisk me away to these exotic locations, and we would have all these exciting rendezvous. He would call me and say, "Hey, let's meet in Copenhagen this weekend," or "I'm coming to Chicago. Let's go there for the weekend," and uh it was like a fairy tale. It was like something out of Disney. It was very romantic and adventurous and exciting. And and when we were together, it was awesome. We had so much fun together. But when we were apart, which was most of the time, I was really lonely and, and quite miserable. And very early on, I started to notice some red flags. And they were things that I noted in the beginning, but I ignored. And I just want to, I really want to tell your listeners some of them because some of them are very subtle and very simple, but, but they mean a lot. So first, after the early, really heavy love bombing, of course, I didn't know what that term was at the time. I didn't, I didn't know the term love bombing, Uh, but all this heavy pursuit and aggressive pursuit, he, then he began to just call or text maybe once a week or maybe once every two weeks. And I found this really strange, but it was also disturbing and hurtful because we were separated by this excruciating time difference and excruciating physical distance. And I knew I was busy. He was busy too. We worked. Um, I had kids. He had kids. But I needed some daily contact. And I think most humans do, right? So I asked him if he would just send me a quick good morning message in the morning and maybe a good night message when he got ready to go to bed, you know, something simple, something quick, something easy. It literally takes two seconds, maybe not even that long. And he simply refused to do this for me. He told me it was no big deal. If he only contacted me occasionally that it, you know, that's not how it works in Europe. You know, we don't, we go weeks without talking to each other. It's not, it doesn't mean anything. And soon after making that simple request, I asked him, why can't you just do this for me? You know, that I need it. You know, that it would make me happy.
2: Why can't, you do it for me and he said because you asked me to so that was the first red flag at that
1: time i was spending a lot of money on so, international travel
0: hold on one second how hey. when when he said that how did you react to that
1: i i was upset i cried you know i didn't understand um And asked him to explain, but he just said, if you had never asked me to, I probably would have done it, but you asked me to, so I'm not going to do it. And that was the end of that.
0: So here is a moment where your worth or value is not, you know, for your whole life, you stood up for your worth and your value. And here is now a moment where it didn't happen. And you didn't value yourself, you didn't value you, so with everything that's been going on, the whirlwind of everything the you know the the long distance and i 'm going to say the long distance is obviously the biggest thing right here because you have. Someone who is now able – if you guys lived in the same town, this wouldn't have happened. And if this person lived in uh, – even in the next state, you're not going to say, oh, we here in Kentucky do it different than you people over in your state. You don't get right. us. You know what I mean?
1: Sure, uh, yeah. So you I have – that was a lot of excuses a lot of time. He would blame it on
0: culture. Yeah, you have the culture difference that's being used in as, as an excuse. So with the long distance and the culture, you are hooked in on the big sweep of the romance. And then the long distance, you know, you're getting depressed because it's it's not there. But the heroin-like kind of addiction has been put into you and you're not acting... Like your normal self, you're not getting your needs met, it's and a very and yeah. at, at at the time when uh, because of the whirlwind, maybe at another time in your life you say this isn't uh, something that can happen. A long distance relationship, especially overseas, is not a thing, but you tried.
1: Right. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, but yeah. yeah, we thought, I thought that the relationship was worth it. I was really um, addicted almost to this, this travel, this, the romance of it all and the excitement of it all. And, I re- and when you say heroin, it's so true. That was my heroin and I was having extreme highs and extreme lows. So I was having the heroin high and the withdrawal (laughs) over and over and over again. So that's a, it's a really good point.
0: And, and now you're getting a point where this one red flag occurs and it's the first time that you're not valuing yourself. And this person is able to use culture, uh, the distance, this isn't a big deal. This is the way I am, but this thing that's inside you of this addiction here is now running you. And are you thinking, okay, I can get through this and like, we'll meet again. And like, you're maybe holding on to something like that.
1: You have to remember that I was brought up to believe that if you start something, you finish it. Yeah. And I was committed to the relationship. And, uh, and, you know, a challenge is not something I would normally back down from. And I knew it was challenging. I mean, I don't recommend, recommend a long distance relationship to anyone, but there are some people who can make it work. And, and I thought if anybody can make it work, it's me because I'm a high achiever. I'm uh, competitive. And, you know, I said I would make this relationship work. I'm going to stick it out. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I was at that point. Although these road flags, you have to remember, they seem monumental now, but at the time it was just like, hmm, you know, at, at the time it, 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 it uh, was hard to see.
0: So after that first one, and you had a little bit of a cry about it, was it smoothed over over in any way? Did anything yeah, happen he, after?
1: that? I remember. I think that was the first time I ever cried in front of him, and, and he said, uh, "I won't talk to you till, stop, till you stop crying because adults don't cry." And uh,
0: and then you got and then you got challenged. Yep. And the challenge to you is a competition
1: there's there may been a competitive element in there, I mean it's interesting that you point that out because I never realized this, but yeah uh, yeah, I think you're you're getting it but um but there were more red flags um so i I was spending a lot of money on this international travel and uh but at the time, I had a really good salary, so that wasn't that big of a deal. But if, and and, okay, if we met somewhere, if we met in Copenhagen, for example, he would pay his way. I would pay my way. And in fairness, he would usually pay for things when we were there, but I was still spending a lot of money. And uh, a few times I would bring this up to him just in kind of casual conversation. Like, can you come to the U S this time? (laughs) And, uh, and my savings was depleting a little bit. And he would just say very, um, he was very matter of fact and very stoic. And he would just say something like, if you can't afford to be there, then don't come. And, uh, yeah, so that was a red flag. Just kind of this lack of empathy for my situation. And, uh, but there were others. So because there was so little contact in between visits, I I began to notice, um, this affected my self-confidence a little bit. I needed some attention. And again, I didn't need constant love bombing, but I just wanted a maybe a good morning text every now and then. And I started to notice on social media that he was doing kind of some virtual flirting with other women. And uh, I began to get, have suspicions that he was cheating on me. I asked him about it and he convinced me that it was just flirting or they were friends or they were work colleagues. It was no big deal. And then he would use the same culture card. Uh, where he would say, all Americans, I mean, all Europeans act that way, and you're just too American. You're too uncultured. And I, you know, bought it, but it still bothered me. And of course, I kind of noted this as a red flag, but, and I didn't even know the term red flag at the time, but I just noted that this bothered me. And um, I, I knew that it was not okay for him to give other women attention when I really needed it and even told him that I needed it. But he did that anyway, and, of course, uh, for anyone out there, that's a red flag. Um, but uh, as it was still pretty early in the relationship, and he started to criticize me. Some more red flags came up, so let's talk about this. He, he began to criticize me for little things. Uh, for example, one time I asked him to review an article that I'd written. And uh, we're in the same industry and he's kind of an expert in the industry. And so I asked him if he would review it for me and I printed it out for him and he read it with zero emotion and zero reaction. And then he just ripped it apart and threw the scraps of paper on the table and said, I don't know why anyone would want to read this. And so I said, well, I mean, do you have any constructive criticism? Can you offer me some notes or some edits? How can I make it better? And he said, there's nothing you can do. You need to start all over. It's terrible. And at this time, you would think that would really bother me, right? But I had a lot of confidence in my work abilities and my talents as a journalist And so I sent it to the editor anyway, because I was happy with it. And I figured, okay, if it's terrible, let the editor tell me, because at least he'll give me some notes on how to fix it. And I just kind of told myself I would never let him read another article. And that was the end of that. And I'm saying this for a a reason. I want to make a point here in a minute, but first I want to say another example. So sometimes he would say things like, you wear too much makeup. You know, in Europe, the women don't wear any makeup and they look better. Or that outfit is not flattering on you. Or I've never been attracted to women with blonde hair. Uh, And those kind of comments about my looks and about my work and things like that were not fun to hear, obviously, but they didn't really upset me. And I just kind of brushed them off and, and didn't give any kind of dramatic reaction. And I later learned in therapy that
2: maybe he was kind of testing the waters, trying to figure out the things that would push my buttons. And I established
1: early on that those were not things that were going to upset me. And so he never did that again. He never made those kind of comments again. Uh, so then I started to get some red flags just about his character and about his lack of empathy. And this was, uh, was uh, I just really started to notice things. Like for example, um, I noticed that he never told his son that he loved him. So his son who was around 11 at the time, uh, would say, good night, dad. I love you, dad, you know, or good night. I love you. And, and he would just say good night. And I I thought that was kind of awkward and bizarre because maybe it's an American thing. I don't know. But, uh, every time I see my kids or talk to them, I tell them I love them. Every time and my parents, every time they talk to me, they say they love me. Uh, so I asked him about this and he told me that he had only said, I love you to his kids. Maybe once or twice in their in their entire lives, and he said, "You know, he should know I love I love him." I, you know, and I told him that people really need to hear it, even if they already know it. I need to hear it. His son needs to hear it. And this was this was a really disturbing red flag that I thought was bizarre, and it really told me a lot about his character. But I began to see even more examples of his lack of empathy. Uh, for example. Uh, My father died, um, and this was still probably during the first year of our relationship. And, of course, obviously, I was very upset, uh, but he refused to come to the funeral. I I asked him if he would come, and he refused to come. And he said, again, very stoic, very matter of fact, I don't know why. I, I didn't know him, so why should I go? And I said, well, to support me. You know, I need your support. I want you to come and hold my hand and help me through it. And he said, "I didn't even go to my own father's funeral. Why should I go to yours? Your family can support you. Your family can hold your hand. I'm not going." And to make it even worse, after the funeral, I tried to call him, and he refused to take my call or text me back for several days after that. And so,
2: at this point, I was, of course, I was very upset about that, and I I was really beginning to question his character. Um, But
1: those were all red flags that I chose to ignore and chose to just not think about and just kind of just sort of file in the back of my brain. But the next red flag was a huge one. We were in Germany and uh, he told me he had a meeting in Frankfurt, which was four hours, a four hour drive away from where we were. And uh, so we took a little road trip. So I went with him, of course, because I was there to see him. And, you know, it was fun at first. We were talking, laughing. We were listening to music, holding hands, being loving and kind to each other, telling stories and uh, having fun. And and we did usually have fun when we were together. I mean, that was we did have a lot of fun. Uh, but all of a sudden I said something and I don't even remember what, but he just fell silent. He just quit talking. And he would not answer direct questions. I would say, uh, did, Are you upset about something? Are you mad at me? Did I say something wrong? What did I do? No answers to direct questions. No response whatsoever. Uh, he just ignored me. And this made me feel insignificant and invisible. It was horrible. I know now that this was the silent treatment, but of course, I didn't know what that was called then. Uh, but after about an hour of this, uh, I started crying again. <laughs> and of course, Adults don't cry, right um, it was so it was just so upsetting, and my therapist later pointed out that he probably took note of that that okay, he finally pushed my buttons <laughs> he finally found a button to push that would really upset me and uh over the course of the next six years this the silent treatment became his favorite weapon against me, and he used it
2: all the time so when,
0: I, well, I have a couple of questions. How often are you seeing each other during these times? A- and, you know, when this specific red flag happens, is it smoothed over after? And if so, um, what is being used to smooth it over?
1: Okay. It's an easy question to answer because he quickly... Uh, learned my currency. Uh, so, of course, it would upset me terribly. And, uh, but then he would say, when he finally broke the silence, he would say, uh, let's take a trip to Iceland, or why don't we go to uh, Brazil, or why don't we go to Prague? And he knew that to me, that was irresistible. And uh that's how he smoothed it over. He would, he would bribe me with a fun adventure.
0: The sense of adventure traveling the world, yes. like being free like that with someone at your side doing it, that is your kryptonite.
1: It, it, it was. And and I didn't realize at the time that I could travel all those places by myself or with someone else, but the, the travel and fun adventures were so connected to him but I couldn't compartmentalize them. You know, I couldn't I couldn't see that I can do all this travel without him. <laughs> you know, I could do it with somebody else or by myself. And I just couldn't see that at the time because they were so connected in so many ways. And uh but but he quickly learned the, the best punishment for me, which was it was not saying my article was bad or that I was ugly or fat or whatever. None of that worked on me, but the silent treatment worked. It upset me every time and the, uh, the currency was this, my sense of adventure and my, my desire to travel the world. So he quickly learned both those things and used them all the time.
0: So yeah, for you, it is the push and pull. I mean, I didn't
1: know it at the time, obviously, you know, I'm speaking to you with the benefit of a couple of years of therapy, but
0: your drug dealer can give it and they can take it away.
1: Exactly. And that's what was happening. He would give me the drug and then he would punish me. Yeah.
2: So uh, now we need to talk a little bit about cheating. <laughs> As you know, all my life,
1: this was a deal breaker. Uh, it was absolutely unforgivable crime if somebody cheated on me. And I even told him at one time, and probably shouldn't have, that I told him about the other man who cheated on me and how if he ever wanted to cheat on me, I would prefer it if he just break up with me. You know, if he doesn't want to be with me, he wants to be with the women, just break up with me and then you can go do what you want with other women. But if you're with me, you know, I expect you to be loyal. I want you to be loyal to me and I will be loyal and faithful to you. And I, I, I need that in return. And, um but I had, I continued to have suspicions because we were apart so much and there were so many um, instances of time when. He would go for a week or two weeks without talking to me, or he would say he's going on a trip for a weekend with friends and then I wouldn't hear from him. And uh it just I was listening to my gut and and by the way, my gut was right, but at the time it was just torture because if I confronted him, he he would make me pay with the silent treatment. Uh and he kind of began to train me a little bit to just not confront him because he knew that the torture of the silent treatment to me was worse than however hurt I was thinking about the possibility of him cheating. And he was right. Um, And I just didn't realize it at the time, but whenever I was feeling uneasy about my suspicions or upset, um, or whenever I would just ignore his messages in retaliation or turn the tables and give him the silent treatment, he would break the silence by proposing some sort of exciting adventure. You know, let's meet in Italy. Let's go to Prague. And I would take the bait every
2: time. Yeah. So at this point, um, we were still in kind of the early
1: year or year and a half of the relationship. And the red flags were there. There's no question. But at this point, I was kind of all in. (laughs) You know, I was in love with him, at least what I thought love was at the time. Uh, We began sailing all the time. And I also fell in love with sailing and uh, we were traveling the world and I was still making a lot of money at that time and could do that kind of traveling. Uh, I was still the editor-in-chief of of the magazine and I managed, I also managed a team of 11 other editors and I was not as confident about my ability to lead people as I was about the work that I did. Um, But I loved working with the young editors and I constantly gave them positive affirmations and I taught them in a very positive way and I tried to create a great team atmosphere, you know, based on, you know, my years of playing team sports and, uh, you know, I rewarded hard work and respect and always had a lot of positivity. And anyway, uh, he began to get in my ear about this and in my head about the way I was managing my team. And as, as I said before, he had tried to take away my confidence about my work and that didn't, and that didn't work. That was unsuccessful, but I wasn't quite as confident about my ability to lead other people. And so he would say things like, uh, why are you thanking them for doing that work? Their paycheck is the thank you. And he would advise me to be really rough on them and told me it was weak of me to compliment them or give them positive feedback, that I should only point out the negative things. And he advised me to be more, quote, German, (laughs) because that's the way he managed his team. And uh, But the problem was my team... were Americans and they were young and they wanted to be mentored rather than ordered round. And eventually some of them began to quit because of me. And eventually I got fired from my job
2: specifically for this harsh management style that I had developed uh, from his advice. So,
0: so here is, a time when you are a beginner at something and when anyone is a beginner at something, they're not going to have as much confidence in in what they're doing. So he's able to get into your ear and through that, you eventually get fired. How do you feel when you get fired? Do you start to spiral?
1: I was devastated. I, I had been, I had
2: worked since I was 14. I had never been fired from anything in my life. Sorry, I had never failed at anything And all of a sudden I was a failure And I had no money And I The kids were in college So I was all alone in my house I'm sorry And I had lost a lot of friends because some of my work colleagues were my friends. And I had spent a lot of my savings on all this international travel. And so I wanted to start my own business. And I had a, I had a solid plan. i created a business plan. I, I, I had someone
1: design a logo. I had um, a great name for a company. Uh, but The skipper convinced me to work for his company.
2: And I was so low on confidence at that point that I agreed. And in doing so, I became financially dependent on him. And
1: this was a gigantic mistake. The worst mistake I ever made, probably. Um, It was a confusing and chaotic time and really, really stressful. I was trying to balance the working relationship with which had a lot of stress and pressure and With the romantic relationship Which had a lot of stress and pressure And it was just simply impossible to do um,
2: I couldn't confront him about work stuff Because I was in fear of damaging The personal relationship And uh,
1: I was kind of hitting an all-time low just in my whole entire in my life I was a little bit depressed at times and he still would have these uh, uh, this time would go by that he wouldn't speak to me even though we were working together um and that's about the time that he announced that he was going to Kaliningrad Russia for work for the weekend and this made no sense to me he had no business there and He never worked on the weekends. Europeans just don't. That's a culture thing I know. They don't work on the weekends ever. And I quickly became suspicious and I checked his Facebook page and I noticed that there were many comments on many posts from a young, beautiful girl from Kaliningrad, Russia. And so I confronted him and uh, he 100 percent. Gaslighted me. He told me it was work. There was nothing to worry about. It was no big deal. Yes, he was going to be seeing that girl, but there were work colleagues. It was no big deal. And he 100% denied that there was anything romantic or sexual or anything like that. It was just business.
2: But I couldn't get
1: that feeling out of my gut you know, the one where you know you're right. <laughs> you just know you're right. And eventually I became so obsessed with this gut feeling that he was cheating with this girl that uh, I began spying on him and looking at his phone and looking at his laptop. And I want to say that I'm not proud of that.
2: Um, It's not something that I would normally do. It's very out of character for me, but I just had to know.
1: And I, my gut told me he was lying to me. It was obvious he was lying to me. Let's face it.
2: And it didn't take me long to find clear evidence of the infidelities with her and many others. But even
1: though this is the part I still have trouble understanding, uh, he would he would convince me that what I saw with my own eyes didn't mean anything and that it was silly of me to be upset. He would call me an uncultured American. He told me that this is just the way Europeans do business. They flirt, but it doesn't mean anything and nothing really happened and the pictures don't mean anything. And uh he would turn it back on me and tell me that the crime of invading his privacy was far worse than any, any cheating or any evidence that I had found. But I was so upset about this. Because, again, cheating is a deal breaker for me. It just is. And now that I had, even though I had suspicions for a very long time, I had clear evidence now. And I told him I needed space and I broke up with him. This was the first of many times I broke up with him. Uh, of course, the gaslighting, he was the master. At the gaslighting. It was really heavy and aggressive. And I did eventually come back to him when he lured me with a trip to Milan. And so we went to Milan, Italy. And this was a, a really pivotal
2: point in time. He was in a, in a meeting, and I, I was working in the hotel room in Milan waiting on him
1: to finish the meeting and then we would go to dinner or whatever. Um, and I needed to save some large files and I knew that he kept some flash drives in his backpack and I was not spying on him this time. I promise this, this was a truly a coincidence. Um, I grabbed one of the flash drives and I put it in the USB drive on my laptop. And that's when I discovered his
2: picture hunting collection. I'll say that again, picture hunting collection. There were folders and
1: folders and folders, probably 50 of them or more, all labeled with names of girls. And none of them were labeled with my name. Uh, I didn't open all of them, but I did open a few of them, and I didn't have to open all of them. Uh, they were all full of very explicit pictures, of naked women, obviously willingly sent to him. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe this is from the past. You know, maybe this is, you know how you gaslight yourself. Uh, you don't want to believe what you clearly see. And, uh, you know, and so I looked at some of the timestamps just on the, the files of the of the of the pictures. And some of them were from before I met him. And a lot of them were as recent as a couple of weeks before that day. And I confronted him when he came back up to the room and he looked at me and laughed at me. Uh, it was very sinister. And he told me that it was no big deal, that it was just a game. It was just a game. He never touched any of these women. It was all a game. And I said, okay, explain to me the game. What is the game? And by the way, I want the women in the audience, in, in, your, your listeners, to, to really listen to this. And please never send any pictures like this to any man you don't know. Um, or anyway, it's okay. Because apparently there are men out there who do this. Uh, so he would seduce them. He would love bomb them prey on their insecurities and then convince them to send these intimate photos. And once he had the photos, he ghosted them. He never spoke to them yet, which clearly in my mind would then again, strip them of any confidence he gave them or their own insecurities would probably be even worse. It was just horrible. I was appalled. I was
2: disgusted. And I told myself I would never speak to him again. It was just unforgivable. How could I be with a man who could do this
1: to other women. And then I said, I said something like, I mean, is this like, is this your porn? I mean, is this Hey, you, uh, you know, I'm sure I use more harsh terms, but you know, is this, you know, what turns you on? And he looked me right in the face and told me it was not the photos that turned him on. It was the
2: manipulation. And so I asked him, why did you never, try to seduce me into sending you photos like that. And he said, because I love you. And can you believe that I convinced myself that, wow, okay, he really does love me because he wouldn't do this to me. And I completely gaslighted myself in a horrible way because after all, I had, I had learned from the master how to gaslight. But it wasn't over. That night, I threw out my back. I stepped on some uh, uh,
1: ice and slipped and threw out my back. And I already had a bulging disc that sometimes just went out for no particular reason. It was very painful. And um, he refused to take me. I told him I need to go to the hospital. And he refused to take me. And he accused me of faking it and overreacting. So I called uh, a mutual work colleague who was staying in the same hotel. And he took me to, and he, and he, you know, just didn't hesitate. Of course, I'll take you to the hospital. You know, you don't feel well. I'll take you to the hospital, of course, because isn't that what human beings do for other human beings, right? So I went to the hospital alone. And when I was released, I called him to see, you know, the man I loved, I called the man I love still, to see if he would pick me up and take me back to the hotel. And he refused. He said he was still in a meeting. He would not leave it. And so I walked two kilometers to the pharmacy and then another kilometer to the hotel. And when I got to the hotel, they wouldn't let me in the room because it wasn't in my name and I didn't have a key. So I laid on the hotel lobby floor for four hours until he finally showed up. And he did let me in the room, but the next morning I left and swore I would never speak to him again. And after that, I did quit working with him. And I did open my own company during that time. I broke up with him for, uh, it was a couple of months and I was determined I wasn't going back this time. The picture hunting thing combined with him leaving me in the hospital. And that was just the end. Forget the cheating at this point. (laughs) The other stuff was just horrible. So I did the best decision I ever, again, I ever made. I quit working with him. I did open my own company that I wanted to in the beginning and I became financially independent again, which was very important. Uh, But he did, in the end, convince me to continue with the personal relationship. And I am not proud of that.
2: How did he do that? Well, he asked me if I wanted to go to Iceland. You see a pattern here,
1: right?
0: So when he asked you to go to Iceland and whatever built up to that... What is going on in your head? What is your mental struggle that you're obviously having probably back and forth?
1: My mental state was, um, he's sorry. You know, he's, he never said the words he was sorry, but he, he told me, you know, it was, he said he would stop the picture hunting. He wouldn't do that anymore. I believed him, uh, that there was no cheating, that he would not flirt with other women and that sort of thing. And um and and let's, you know, let's go to Iceland and let's have a nice vacation and let's smooth things over and start all over. And the other thing he would always say is let's just press a reset button. The past is the past. Let's reset and start over. And this was another thing that he always said. But, and I always told him, you know, it's very hard to forget the past. You know, it's hard to let go of all these hurtful, horrible, awful things. But, uh, but in the end, I did. And uh, I got on a plane and I met him in Iceland
0: when it came to you starting your new business and now you're doing well in your new business, did he say anything like that? He was proud of you or anything like that?
1: No, he told me I was a traitor and, uh, that I had left him in the lurch and he, he, you know, took a chance on me and saved me when I was down and, you know, all, all, all the things that, someone like that would say
0: so before you went to iceland with him Mm -hmm. was there any thought process in the sense of okay i have my life back on track i'm 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 back on track yes and now that i'm like my own before i wasn't my own person the last time i was with him now i am my own person i've got everything back together again i can i can do my one shot here because uh, i'm in a good place now
2: Yeah. Exactly. Okay.
1: Exactly. I felt confident. You know, I had made my point. I broke up with him. I didn't talk to him. Uh, I started my own company. I started to live my life and, and maybe we should try to reset it. Maybe we should try to save the relationship. I remembered all the good times. And, and I, by the way, I would always tell myself, uh, well, I'm not perfect either. You know, I'm, I'm not perfect. I have character flaws. I have, you know, things that are bad about me too. And, uh, you know, I looked at his phone all the time. <laughs> you know that was horrible. How could I do that and uh so, I would beat myself up a little bit and kind of let it slide because again, nobody's perfect so
0: those so those little kernels of truth when that really wasn't the reality of the situation, really got you to gaslight your own um, values, your own morals. You are a completely different person at this point from when you began. There's no question. The innocent version of you is long gone.
1: And I want to say something else too, because you're making a really good point. Um, It got to a point where I quit telling family and friends that I'd
2: broken up with him. Because deep down I knew I would go back. And so I just didn't tell people that we had broken up. Isn't that unhealthy?
0: Well, this is, the, this is the really interesting part. And for everyone to hear, you were this person of morals, of values, of all of these things. You're not just being, you know, you're not just having these things done to you. You're being deceitful to yourself. Absolutely. You are attacking yourself. You are being deceitful to the uh, people around you because you don't want them to know. You're having these secrets. Your life is completely different. You lived your life in one way for so long, and now whew, it's gone.:
1: And also, you know, I was working from home with my own company, so I was no longer like in a work environment where I had a community atmosphere. And so I was very, I was alone all the time. My kids had left and gone to college and so they weren't in the house anymore. Um, so I was completely separated from the human race for for all practical purposes. I mean, I had interview clients over the phone and that sort of thing uh, and, and occasionally went and saw clients for business. But for the most part, I was alone all day, every day. And I had no one to make me um, accountable for those moral values that, that I held so dear for so long And uh, That was also really unhealthy But that was the situation at the time And uh, I had a little bit of PTSD From getting fired uh, And so I didn't want to go back Into an office atmosphere I just wanted to work for myself Work for my home Be by myself And not um, risk that again uh, So I didn't want to leave you know, my financial future in the hands of somebody else ever again, that they could just wake it one day and fire me. Uh, so I, all that was going on, all the things. Yeah, it was it was a very depressing and uh, difficult and confusing and chaotic time for me. And all the while, this man was in my ear.
2: He was texting me, calling me, all the, all the things. So I agreed to meet him in Iceland. Um, and we
1: had a great time. I mean, it was super fun. We did all the things. All the things you do in Iceland. You know, rented a car. We went around. We went and saw the waterfalls. I fly a Yokel. We went to the Calvin Glacier. Swam in the hot springs. All the things you do in Iceland. It was so much fun. And we were there for only
2: four days. But apparently that was one day too many for him. So we were in the car. And again, I said something.
1: I have no idea what that made him mad. And he began the silent treatment, his favorite weapon. And I got really upset. I started yelling at him. You know, I'm here. I said I would press the reset button. I'm here. I'm uh, trying to do this again. You know, I I hate it when you do this. Uh, I can't stand this. And uh, I started crying, which as you should know by now that adults don't cry, right? And uh, he got really upset and he pulled over to the side of the road. He reached his arm across my body, opened the door, and pushed me out, and then he sped away. So I rose to my feet, and that's when I realized I had no purse, I had no phone, I had no money, I had no GPS. So, and I was bawling. I wasn't just a little tear trickling down my cheek. I was openly bawling, sobbing. Uh, I started wandering the streets of Reykjavik uh, for hours. And I finally found a cab driver that would give me a ride to the hotel, and I promised him that I would pay him when we got there. And I kept thinking, he's going to turn around, he's going to turn around and come back, and you know, he'll or he'll be at the hotel. He'll say he's sorry. This is horrible. He didn't mean to do this. He couldn't have possibly meant to do this. Um, just leave me on the side of the road. But he did. He uh, apparently, when he sped off, he drove straight to the airport, boarded a plane, and uh, went to Germany. And he, um, when the cab driver got me to the hotel, I said, okay, wait here, and I'm going to go inside, and I'm going to get your money, so please wait. And, uh, and he, you know, this stranger that I didn't even know, put his hand on my hand and said,
2: no charge, and you're going to be okay. And I, thought to, I thought to myself, this stranger was more kind to me than the man I loved. That really got my attention, uh, and again, I swore I would never speak to him again after that. That was it; no more reset buttons. That was it, and he never apologized for that. Uh,
1: and his sister begged him to apologize to me. He had a friend that was a mutual friend of ours. He told him how awful it was, and 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 the friend even said, even if you don't, don't mean it, you have to say you're sorry. You know, for this, this is unforgivable. You know, everyone in his world was telling him that. And, of course, he was begging my forgiveness. And I finally said, can you at least promise me you would never do that again? And he said, no, I can't promise you. If you get on my nerves, I might do it again. And then he said very flippantly, perhaps I should
2: abandon you in more foreign countries so you can work on your survival skills. So uh, I broke up with him. Didn't speak to him for several months, and um, but the cycle kind of continued after that. He con- would continue to
1: love bomb me, bribe me with a fun adventure, uh, some sort of exotic vacation around the world, um, and I was in a very, very dangerous spiral uh, um, that I couldn't see clearly. You know, I was in the most, the most ridiculous repeating dangerous spiral of, of this clear pattern of love bombing and then devaluing and then discarding. And of course I didn't know all that at the time, you know, I know that now because I've been in therapy and I've had someone explain that to me, but, um, and it was always my fault. And, um, it was always, he only did that because I did this and, um, you know, he did hurtful things like delete all the photos of me, you know, erase me from his life. Uh, but the silent treatment was always the weapon and it was always used. And, um, yeah, the cycle went on for four years. So I finally had had enough. I don't know. I don't even know what the last straw was at this point. Um, in the fall of 2017, I turned it around and this time I demanded silence. I told him that we would have no contact at all for at least three months until after the new year. And uh, and I meant it, and I did it. I didn't respond to any messages. I didn't respond to emails. I didn't answer his phone calls. Nothing. Um, and he couldn't take it. When the tables were turned, he realized how awful that was. Uh, within two weeks, he had had enough, and he hopped on a plane and traveled from Germany, and showed up unexpectedly on my doorstop, doorstep doorstep uh, just on a random Tuesday night in Alabama. And this time he said it was different. This time he was moving to the United States and he was going to live with me permanently. There would be no more distance between us. There was no more picture hunting, no more cheating. And he did finally admit that he had cheated many times, Uh, but he promised no more. And, you know, this was all I'd ever wanted. All I'd ever wanted was for us to be together more than we were apart and That's when we began to plan a trip to sail his boat from Germany to Alabama. And I thought to myself, uh, I'm giving him his lifelong dream. He always wanted to live a life at sea. He always wanted to sail across the Atlantic. He always wanted to live on a boat. And so I thought, he'll have to love me now. He'll have to be faithful now because I'm giving him his dream. And he can't possibly cheat on me from
2: the middle of the ocean, right? Um, I was wrong. But uh. at this point,
0: you are feeling like you're the one in charge. In the sense, the power like, has yes, shifted. Point, in, yeah. the, the power, after all of these years, um, it has shifted into your corner. He's coming to you. There's no balance here because everyone's, you should be looking for balance. But in your, in, in how you're thinking here is, Things have shifted. I'm kind of in control. He now really wants me. He really wants it to work. Yes. Maybe he's finally, because of how this balance has happened, seen how much I really am worth it, possibly.
1: That's exactly what I thought. Um, and it was different, like for a few months, it was different. He was very attentive. He was, he was loving. He was kind. He was there all the time. He wasn't on his phone all the time. I mean, he really did change. He just, and I do think that he made an effort, but it just wasn't sustainable for him. He just, he could not do that for too long. But anyway, we, uh, we decided that we were going to take my dogs, uh, Captain Jack and Scout. I had two beagles. And they're just my life. I mean, they're my family. And uh, I love them so much. My kids aren't home anymore, so they're kind of my family. They're my company. They are uh, they helped me through a lot of these cold, dark, lonely times. And so I didn't want to leave them at home. And we thought the journey would take about eight months uh, to sail from Germany to Alabama. And so we wanted to take the Beagle. So we put that on a plane. I got on a plane and um, we went to Germany and we started, uh, we set sail from Stralsund um, in August of 2018. And at first things were really good. You know, we were doing a lot of sailing. We were doing a lot of exploring new places. I mean, it was, for me, I mean, it was just everything. And we actually... You know, in the beginning, we were, it was mostly sailing and we were really becoming close because we were fighting the storms together and we were battling seasickness together and we were uh, accomplishing great things. Uh, you know, we crossed the Baltic Sea and then the Kiel Canal and then the North Sea and then the English Channel. And then we crossed the Bay of Biscay, which is one of the most challenging bodies of water to cross in a sailboat. And so we had done all this and we were feeling really good about ourselves and we were really happy and things were good. But then we started to slow down a little bit because we had done all this heavy blue water offshore sailing and um and I and I told him I said we need to slow down we need to start you know exploring a little bit seeing some of the places so we were going around the coast of of Spain and Portugal as we we're slowing down we were spending a little bit more time in each port which was good but that's when he started uh booking a lot of flights to go home to quote work or to quote visit his daughter And, uh, and I thought, well, of course he should go see his daughter. She was only eight years old at the time. And of course I also questioned his character for taking a trip like this with an eight year old daughter, but that's another story for another day. It's just another one of those things that I didn't really understand. I would have never left my children if they were that young, but he did. And so what kind of monster would I be if I said, no, you have to stay here with me. You can't go see your doctor, your daughter. So, but of course I later learned he was not working nor seeing his daughter. He was seeing other women, but I didn't know it at this time. And I thought to myself, you know, this is not what I signed on for because every time we reached another port, he would leave and I would be all alone on the boat with the dogs. And I thought, you know, this is weird. You know, his, it's his dream to live on a boat, not mine. And I'm the one here and he's back in civilization, sleeping in a comfy bed. And he has a hot shower and he has internet and he has all the things I don't have. And, uh, you know, I was getting him his dream and he wasn't even there. And so that was a little bit of an issue, but okay. So we had a few, there were a few times he he left a few times. We had several fights and whatever, but, uh, at this point it was time to cross the Atlantic. So we crossed the Atlantic to Brazil. And by the way, let me just say, we crossed the Atlantic ocean in a sailboat (laughs) and I'm pretty proud of that. It was a great accomplishment. Um, but once we got to Brazil, he began to leave me even more often and because we were in very remote parts of the world, we had hardly any internet, if, if any. Uh, cell phones didn't work. Uh, I became more and more uh, detached from family and friends. Uh, I was unable to go home because I didn't have any money. I'd put all my money into the voyage and into boat maintenance and things like that. And um, I was unable to work because there was no internet. And at this point, I had poured my entire life savings into the journey had nothing left. And so I called a friend of mine back home and asked her if she would start selling my furniture and my car because I was unable to earn money. So she did. And every cent that I made on selling pretty much all
2: of my possessions uh, went right back into boat repairs or expenses for the journey. During this time, I fell into a
1: really deep, dark depression, as you can imagine. He would, uh, it wasn't just that he left us um, to go somewhere else, to get on a plane and go somewhere, but he would leave the dogs and me on the boat for literally weeks at a time with no way to go ashore, no way to take a shower, didn't have internet. I couldn't even take the dogs for a walk. And in fact, when uh, he would get up every, when he was there, he would get up and he would, uh, before I could even get up and get things together, he would jump into the dinghy and he would Go to shore, leaving me there. And the we were not in like the Caribbean or somewhere where you would think, uh, oh, there's beautiful blue waters and you can go swimming and there's dolphins and whatnot. I mean, we were in muddy river water in Kourou um, in French Guiana. And one day, some local fishermen told us, "Don't swim in these waters because they're full of piranha." So I literally could not leave the boat. Uh, When he would return to the boat, he would ignore me. Just 100% silent treatment all the time. Uh, The abuse began to increase. Um, It was subtle at times, but very cruel. For example, he forbade me to hang pictures of my children on the wall. He said, I don't like having faces staring back at me. We can only put charts and maps on the wall. And uh, he wouldn't let me use the onboard energy like we had solar energy, but he wouldn't let me use it to charge my laptop. So I couldn't work or watch a movie and he would check it every day when he came back to make sure I had not used it. He would check the dial. Uh, He had an Internet data card, but uh, he would take it with him when he left the boat every day. And I had no way at all to connect to the outside world. I couldn't call friends. I couldn't call family. I couldn't text. I couldn't get on social media. Uh I, I had already read all the books that were on board. So uh, I, I literally had nothing to do all day, but just sit and be more depressed. Uh, I did, however, write in my journal every day and uh, later turned that into a book. So uh, I, I did, that was the only thing I could do was journal. And during that time, I also developed some very severe health issues. And I became quite concerned, and uh, I was in a lot of pain, and I asked him about it. I asked him, you know, I told him that I I was having some issues and showed him
2: some evidence of my issues. And he just said, quit complaining. If you're so worried, take yourself to a doctor. And
1: so this just went on for for many months. Um, The isolation, however, started to backfire on him, but he didn't know it. The more he isolated me, the less I missed him, the less I loved him. And therefore, I started to get a little bit stronger. He could see this because I was sticking up for myself. Like, like for example, I put a picture of my kids on the wall. You know, little things like that. I started using the, I started turning on the fan because it was 104 degrees. I started to kind of abuse his rules because it didn't matter. He was already punishing me with the worst weapon he could possibly punish me with, which was the silent treatment. So what did I have to lose? He began, the abuse just began to escalate. He became more volatile. He would start throwing things, breaking things, that sort of thing in little mini fits of rage. But at the time, I should have
2: uh, taken more note of that, but I didn't. So at
0: this point, you eventually ended up being isolated on a boat for about two months. Which is pretty crazy when you think about that. Being on a boat for two months is a very, very long time and completely being isolated out there by yourselves. You were with your dogs, you were cooped up for way too long. They were cooped up for too long. And then you were able um, to get we're off going to at a quick French sail to
1: Devil's Island. And this is where I really wanted to go in French Guiana. Um, it's like three islands and devil's Island. It's a really cool place because it was once a prison and it's called the Alcatraz of the Atlantic. And, um, the movie and the book Papillon um, is set on devil's Island. And it's a true story about the prison that was once there. And so I really wanted to see it. Um, I love history and of course love going to new places. And so when we arrived, we were trying to moor the boat And, uh, we were meeting a friend there, by the way, we were meeting another sailor friend there and who was already anchored there. We were mooring the boat and he got frustrated at me and he threw something, um, that was mine that I really cared about overboard. And I got really mad and we had a huge loud fight that the sailor friend overheard. And, uh, but anyway, we were scheduled to have a fish fry with him on shore. So we went to shore and that's when I finally got to take the dogs for their first walk in two months and we walked for about two hours and I, I found it really ironic I even thought about it in the moment that you know I was on an island that was once a prison
2: and it was the first time in two months that that I felt free so anyway we had a lovely
1: evening with the other sailor, and of course, whenever we were around other people, I mean the skipper was charming he was he was wonderful, he was charismatic, everybody loved him, he told animated stories, he was great, everybody loved him uh But the next day, that sailor confronted me we had a little we were taking a walk and we had a little bit of a private moment, and he
2: said, "Are you safe?" and the question really startled me; it really caught me off guard. Because it was the first time I knew my situation was horrible, but I didn't know that anybody else noticed it or knew it. And uh, I just said, you know, I kind of looked at him confused and,
1: and I just said, you know, it's okay. You know, he's not very kind to me sometimes, but that's just how he is. You know, I said something to that effect of just defending him. And uh, he said, well, I'm planning on fishing with a skipper this afternoon. So uh, would you mind if I just talked to him about him? I might just want to let him know it's not cool how he treats you. And I panicked. I went into a full-on panic. I begged him, please don't say anything. And I said something to the effect of, if he says something to me, he's going to make me pay for it. And so I thought about that comment. I thought about it over and over as we were walking back. And I was going back to the boat. I'm, are you safe? You know, why would he ask me that? Why would he say, are you safe? And I knew that I wasn't happy with the current situation. I was finally over that, thinking this relationship going to work. But I was afraid to confront him. But at the same time, I, was, I had been getting stronger. I was finding a little bit of courage. And um, at that point, I knew I didn't love him anymore. I was not even jealous anymore of these obvious affairs he was having every time he left. He left uh, the dogs and me alone on the boat. So I found a little courage and as he was loving the dinghy with all the fishing stuff, I told him to have fun. But afterward, you know, tonight we need to have a serious conversation. And he said, what's it about? And I said, I'm unhappy. And you obviously don't want me here or you wouldn't leave me alone on the boat all the time, you know, and it's just, maybe it's just time for me and the
2: dogs to go home. And he was already in the dinghy, and uh, he kind of flew into Uh, a rage is the only way to explain it. He stood up in the dinghy and he screamed,
1: you said you would love me forever. And you promised me, you said you would love me forever. You said you would sail with me forever. And I said, well, yeah, but when you treat me like shit, it gives me the right to change my mind. And this has been going on long enough and I can't take anymore. It's time. And uh, so he he was screaming he was cussing he was yelling he was out of control he threw the fishing poles overboard then he threw the tackle box overboard and then uh he had a a knife in a little holder on his belt and he pulled that velcro away and picked up the knife and threw that overboard and there was an empty bucket in the dinghy Threw that overboard he basically emptied everything in the dinghy into the sea I, I don't understand why but he was he was raging And then he turned on the motor of the dinghy and he started circling the boat like a shark circling its prey. And still screaming at me, yelling at me. By this time, Captain Jack and Scout were agitated and they started barking and howling. And of course, they're beagles. And so they're very, very loud. And he was being very loud. Uh, But we were in a private alcove. And I knew that my sailor friend was in the boat not too far away, but there was nobody else to hear. He circled the boat a few times and then went to the stern of the boat and climbed on board. And I was scared at this point. And so I kind of slumped into the corner of of the cockpit. And Scout was really scared, too. And she was trembling. And I was trembling. And she got up in my lap, and I just held her. But Captain Jack... Was barking and howling And he kept himself between me and the skipper And he was barking and uncontrolled He was protecting me And but the skipper got on board And he just walked right through the cockpit And went down like he was on a mission And went down into the cabin And he ripped the photo of my children Off the wall And tore it up into a million pieces And threw the scraps in my face And then he went back down the cabin And uh, proceeded to break Anything that could break throw anything that could be thrown, emptied every locker. Uh, the cabin was completely trashed, broken glass everywhere. It was
2: it was, a, a serious rage. And uh, and then he came back into the cockpit, and
1: Captain Jack was really barking and howling at the time, uh, growling at him. And he said, shut up, Captain Jack. And he reached over and smacked Captain Jack right
2: in the face. But it didn't stop him. And about that time that he did that, we heard something on the radio. And it was our sailor friend, the one that had asked me if I was safe. And on the radio, he just said, he said my name. And he said, are you okay? And this infuriated the skipper. He switched the
1: radio off. He took the receiver and slung it across the room. Um, and. uh and then he came back into the cockpit, and I was sincerely scared at this point. I didn't say anything. I was not confronting him. I, I was not being combative. I was just being quiet. I was just trembling in the corner. And he stood up on the bench. He was still yelling and screaming and cussing. I, I saying horrible things to me, just saying all the things that he hated about me. I don't even remember what he was saying because I was too scared. It didn't even matter at that point. But he uh, he took his hat off his head and threw it in the water. And then he took his shirt off and threw that in the water. This is, it was very bizarre.
2: Uh, then he took one boot off, threw it in the water, took the other boot off, threw it in the water, took both his socks off, threw those in the water. And then he's, he stood up on the bench and he
1: unbuckled his belt and he slipped it through the lips of his jeans and he held it up in the air and kind of brandished it like a whip. And I, I was terrified. Captain Jack was still barking right in his face. He wasn't backing down. And then he just threw. I I was sure he was going to beat me with that belt. But he didn't. He um, threw it into the water. And then he jumped in the water and started swimming to shore. And we were about, um, I would say we were about 200 yards from shore. And that's, you know, so, you know, two American football fields. You know, we weren't that close, but we weren't that far away. And he was swimming to shore. We got about halfway there. I turned the radio back on and I called to the other sailor. And uh, he said, what is going on? You know, I heard all the screaming. I heard the dogs barking and everything. And what's going on? And I said, you know, he just, he just got mad at me. He threw a fit. He trashed the cabin and now he's swimming to shore. I don't know what's going on. And uh, he got, we, we watched him and he, got all the way to shore and he climbed up the ladder and he was still just in his jeans and his bare feet, no shirt, no hat, and he just started running to the other side of the island. And uh we couldn't see him anymore. And so the sailor, the other sailor
2: said, um, why don't you just, he said, he's on the other side of the island. Why don't you just pull in the anchor and sail away? And <laughs> You know, I wanted, to, it was a good idea. You know, I wanted to say yes. I wanted to do that. But at that time, I had no confidence. And I said something to the effect of, well, I could probably
1: sail back to Kuru, but I don't think I could, you know, I'm like 3,000 miles away from Florida.
2: I don't think I could sail that far by myself. And he said, okay, how about this? Pack a bag. Get whatever the dogs need and get the diggy and come over here and I'll pull in my anchor and I will sell you to Key West. And I almost said yes. (laughs) And something, something's really important here. Sometimes people throw you a life rig. And you can either grab it and save yourself. Or you can drown. And I let the life rig float away. And I just made excuses. I said, oh, you know, it's okay. He's just being a baby. It's all fine. He did come back to the boat uh, the next morning. He, by the way, I've regretted that ever since. that I didn't take him up on that offer. But I didn't. And um, he came back to the boat. He forced me to clean up his mess that he made. And uh, we sailed to Suriname. And when we got to Suriname, which is in kind of the northern part of South America,
1: he began, he continued to isolate me on the boat. But at this time, I was okay with that because I really didn't want to be around him anyway. I didn't want to be anywhere near him. I slept in the cockpit. I wouldn't even sleep in the cabin. I, did, I didn't want to be near him. I didn't want him to touch me. I didn't want to anything. He and the other sailor had also sailed to Suriname, and they decided to rent a car and split the cost of a rental car. And so we were in the car one day running some errands, and the two guys were in the front seat, and I was in the back seat with Captain Jacket Scout. And um, the two guys got into a heated argument. And the skipper started yelling at him and you know, I take, I would take that, but this guy would. And he said, you know, man, this, and he's kind of a cool surfer dude, really cool guy from South Africa. And, and he said, you know, man, this is not cool. You know, you can't treat me like this. It's not okay for you to talk to me like this. You, you know, we can have a, a discussion. We can have an argument. We can have a, uh, di- we can disagree, but you can't yell at me like this. It's not okay. And so of course the skipper used his greatest weapon. And inflicted the silent treatment
2: on our friend, and so when we got back to the marina, uh, he confronted him about it, and the skipper just laughed in his face.
1: We got back to the boat, and I said, "You know, you got to say you're sorry this is this is horrible what you did to him, the way you treated him. It was terrible, and I'm embarrassed, I'm humiliated, and it's bad, and, and I said, you know you shouldn't do that to him, and quite frankly, you shouldn't do it to me either. It's not okay." and you need to apologize. So I don't know that he apologized. He shook his hand. He he said something. Anyway, we invited him to lunch. So we went to lunch at a nearby marina um, that had a water view, and it was full of people. It was really crowded. And we sat down, and uh, it was real awkward at first, but uh, we started telling stories as sailors do. And I just want to warn you that this part's going to be hard to here for many listeners, but we were um uh, things were lightning, the mood was lightning a little bit, and the skipper had a fried chicken finger in his hand, and he was telling a story, and he was talking with his hands, and he was very animated, and he was using his hands, he was and um he let his hand kind of linger in the air just a little bit too long and a little bit too close to Captain Jack's face. And Captain Jack, I think, I'm sure, thought he was giving him a treat. And so he snapped the chicken finger out of the skipper's hand and um the skipper uh, flew into another one of these rages, and he grabbed Captain Jack's collar, and he just uh, started beating him, just slapping him, open hand, open palm, back of his hand, open palm, back of his hand. And everybody in the in the restaurant was watching and was just completely disgusted. And um, so our sailor friend, who was there, <laughs> got up and said, "That's it, I'm out of here," and he
2: left. And I said, "You know what?" That is it. And I um, got between the skipper and my dog. And,
1: uh, and of course, I some of the swats landed on me, but it didn't matter. At that point, I leashed him, leashed my other dog, and, and I grabbed the rental keys off the table.
2: And uh, he sat back down, and he started eating his food, and he said, he won't do that again. And so, at that point, I was done. I, went, I drove back to the marina, I got the dinghy, went to the went to the boat to get my backpack, and in my backpack,
1: I always kept my laptop, my phone, my chargers, my passport, and my credit card. I got it, and I went, I got the, the backpack, I got back in the dinghy, went to the uh, cafe in the marina so I could have internet, and I just started trying to find a way to get the dogs home. I already knew, by the way, this time, um, I was having severe health issues. I don't know if I mentioned that before, but I was in native surgery, and I had already planned to go home to have surgery, but I had not booked the flight yet because the skipper kept leaving, and he said, "Oh well, after this trip you can go, or after this trip you can go." And so time had gone by, and um, and he was also already had another uh, trip scheduled for the very next day. Um, but I called airlines. You know, I, I need to get two dogs to the US. I'll go anywhere in the US, it doesn't matter where. I just need to go somewhere in the US. So because then I figured
2: if I can get to the US, I can get a rental car, and I can drive home. And uh and so but I knew I had to go. I knew it was time.
1: And uh but you know, we had put the dogs in kennels in the cargo uh when we flew from Atlanta to Frankfurt, and that happens all the time. Dogs fly in airplanes like that all the time, but it's if the temperature is higher than 85 degrees, I learned when I called the airline, uh, they won't let dogs ride in the cargo because they would roast to death.
2: And I looked at the gauge on the wall, and it was 104. So there was no way. And so I said, what about support animals? And they said, you can take one. But I couldn't leave one, one behind, you know. There were two of them. And so I told myself, okay. I'll book this flight, I'll go home, have my surgery, I'll come back, and I'll just be the first mate. You know, the relationship is over. I will just be the first mate, and I will just, we'll sail, I'll sail with him till we get to Key West, and then I'll get off with the dogs, and he can go on with his life. And uh, that was the plan. In my mind, that was the plan. So I booked the, the flight round trip.
1: So he went on his trip. He was gone two weeks. And, and you know, by then when he left, I was happy because he wasn't there. And I could leave. I could get off the boat. I could go uh, walk the dogs. I could go get food. And so when he came back, uh, I thought I had my flight booked. And it was two days away. And I thought, okay, I can make it another two days. Uh. And of course, he continued his routine of leaving every day and leaving us there on the boat. But one day he um, left his laptop sitting on the navigation table and it was open and on. And I thought, well, that's bizarre. He he always took his laptop with him. And so uh, curiosity got the best of me and I looked and right there, I mean, it was almost as if he wanted me to see it, where his synced. WhatsApp messages and it was conversations with women that
2: were sexually charged. And I also found out just by looking at that time that um,
1: uh, the last trip he had gone to Madrid and kind of wined and dined a woman and they stayed in a five-star hotel and had rooftop cocktails and explored the city on electric scooters. And, you know, I wasn't jealous He had obviously had sex with her. I didn't even care, but I was jealous of the comfy bed (laughs) and the fact that he had air conditioning and got to have rooftop cocktails. I wanted all those things, and he didn't. He couldn't give them to me. He gave those things to somebody else. And so, when he got back, I said, "I'm going to the marina, and uh, you need to watch the dogs, and I'll be back." I didn't ask him. I just, I just told him. And I got the dinghy and I went and I sat there for a very long time, thinking, "What do I do?" So in my head, I was saying, "Okay." It's only two days.
2: I've just got to make it two more days. I should just ignore this and move on. But it was just the humiliation, the, the six years of cheating, and it just got to me. And I said, I, um, it, it, you know, I have to say something and
1: I thought to myself okay if I go back and I try to have a conversation with him he's either going to uh gaslight me and try to tell me what I saw wasn't real
2: or he is going to give me the silent treatment and frankly frankly I was not in the mood for either and so I decided to write him a letter so
1: I wrote him a letter and I basically said you are the worst kind of human you know you you deserve the Olympic gold medal for cheating, and you should not be proud of that, and you are disgusting, and I hate you, and I never want to see you again, and um, it is over, and you should believe me this time that it's over, and um, he, and and I said, uh, but I just have one request, and that's that you'll just please safely bring my dogs to the U.S., and I'll meet you anywhere in the U.S., just bring them safely home to me, and I'll come get them, and then you can go on with your whining and dining women all over the world and you can do your own thing and you can have picture hunting and you won't have to worry about me looking at your phone and so uh send the letter and immediately he responded with probably the closest thing to an apology he's ever given me he didn't say I'm sorry and he didn't admit any wrongdoing but he um he responded and then uh I just didn't respond again I just knew that I had made my decision that there was no there was no conversation that was going to happen. And so I sat there for a really long time, maybe another hour. And I started to feel really calm and resolute. You know, it's finally over. We're finally to the end of this. You know, this nightmare is going to end. And so I got in the dinghy and I went back to the boat. And I started to approach the boat and and uh, it was very eerie. There was something very ghostly about the boat. There was no noise. Normally when I would go on shore and then come back if I didn't have the dogs with me they would be on the stern barking and howling and tails wagging and excited to see me and uh, I couldn't hear anything from the dogs and but I tied up the dinghy and I boarded the ship and I put my backpack down uh, on the stern deck and again my backpack had my laptop my chargers my phone my credit card and my passport and, but I never normally put it there. And in hindsight, I'm not exactly sure why I did. But I put it on the stern deck right there. And uh, I went into the cockpit. And the skipper was sitting there. And he was staring catatonically at nothing. And next to him on the bench was a pile of torn up paper. And uh, I knew just from looking at it that it was the picture of my kids. that A new picture of my kids that I had hung on the wall after he
2: tore up the other one. And it was obviously, it was almost like an animal had marked its territory. You know, it was very, very, I don't even know how to describe it, sinister almost. He wanted a reaction from me. And I just decided I wasn't going to give it to him. And I just said, where are the dogs? And without losing his stare, he just pointed to the
1: stern deck. And, uh. And I looked over, and the companionway doors were closed, and and the the latch was bolted. And I unbolted the latch, and the dogs came out, but they weren't excited to see me. They were well, they
2: were a little bit, but they they were shaking. And uh, I cannot and will not let my mind, you know, go to the reasons why. But I left them out and I just loved on them and gave them treats and petted them and loved them until the tails were whacking again, you know. And then I walked he was still staring at nothing. He was catatonic. And so
1: I went down into the cabin and I grabbed a small duffel bag and I just started putting some clothing
2: and some personal items in the back. And I did not want a confrontation and I didn't want to say anything to him. And then because
1: I was not reacting to him or the this weird stage he had seen, he had staged in the cockpit with the, with the torn up picture. Uh, he started just saying really bizarre things to me. Like uh, the one I remember uh, the most was he said, uh, I hate it when you make coffee for me in the morning. Uh, you, I feel pressure to drink it. And I was like, what? And I just said, well, you know, uh, I make coffee for you in the morning because I'm making it for myself and it's no, no trouble. And that's just what kind people do for each other. It's no big deal. If you don't want to drink it, throw it out or you let it sit there. I don't care if you don't drink it. You should not feel pressure to drink it. And then I just kept packing and he kept staring at nothing. And he said a few other things. He was trying to get a rise out of me. And he was just kind of, I know now that he was just kind of fishing for something that would push my buttons. And then he said, you know,
2: I gave up the picture hunting for you you know, like it was the ultimate sacrifice that he gave this up for me. And, uh, and he said, you know, you never loved me and I never loved you. And
1: I said, well, you know, I believe you that you never loved me because anybody who loved me would not have treated me this way for six years, but you can't tell me what I feel or don't feel. I definitely did love you. And, uh, you can't tell me what to feel. And I kept packing. He kept. And and then he said, uh, uh, "You know, it wasn't that many women. It was only about one a month." And that got the rise out of me that he wanted. And so I went up into the cockpit. And uh, oh, and he's and after that he said, "I I don't even like sex that much." And so uh, I went up into the cockpit, and he was still staring catatonically. And I I shouldn't have done this, but I grabbed his face in my hand and kind of turned it toward me to make sure he
2: could see me make sure he would have to look at me. And I said, um, if you didn't like sex that much, why did you use it as
1: a weapon to hurt me all these years? Why did you, why all the cheating? Why all the picture hunting? You know, you were just the worst kind of human being who ever lived and I hate you. And I can't get away from, I can't wait to get away from you. And I went back down into the cabin and maybe in hindsight, I shouldn't have said that. But uh, next thing I knew something broke. Something went flying across the room and shattered into a million pieces. I don't know what it was, but I turned around and all I could see was just this kind of black silhouette walking down the stairs. It was kind of, you know, the light was coming in and it was backlit and it was real dark in the cabin below. Um, He was just kind of slow. It was very calculating the way he was walking toward me. I, I was really scared. And he just started trashing the cabin, he just started throwing things. And uh, the dogs started barking. They were still in the cockpit. And they started barking and howling. And he turned around and threw something at them. It shattered. And they kind of, they scattered to try to avoid all the flying debris. And I said, that's it. I'm out of here. I didn't even pick up the bag I was packing. And I marched right by him and started going up the stairs. And uh, I got up two of the four stairs. And I felt a tug on my
2: ponytail. And he tugged my ponytail so hard that uh, I I fell on my back onto the wooden floor and banged my head on the wooden floor. And uh, I
1: didn't lose consciousness, but my head was throbbing. And I didn't know whether it was from hitting it on the floor or, you know, the yank of my ponytail that nearly scalped
2: me. And then he stood over me kind of straddle me stood over me and he reached down uh with his arms and his hands and he grabbed me by the neck and by the throat and he lifted me up uh off the ground
1: and I'm not a petite person by the way but I mean I'm 5'7 150 pounds and I'm athletic I'm strong and he easily lifted me off the ground uh by the neck and he threw me against the wall and the dogs were barking
2: and howling like crazy. And uh, and he began to squeeze the life out of me. And uh, at first I was fighting. Like my feet were not touching the ground. I was trying to kick him. And I was hitting him with open fists as much as I could. But the oxygen started leaving my body. <laughs> and it's, it's something really sinister and evil about being strangled because you're forced to look your abuser in the eye, you know, while they're doing it. And his eyes were just dead. They weren't on corporate anymore. They were just black. Lifeless and just evil. And uh I just I thought about my kids, you know, and I said, you know, I I will never not be able to see their faces staring back at me. I remember that going through my head. And I remember thinking about my parents and how I hoped that they would never know what was happening. There's just some things that a mama shouldn't have to know. And just as everything was getting really, really blurry,
1: I looked up, I kind of glanced over. I couldn't move my neck, of course, but I glanced over into the cockpit.
2: And I saw Captain Jack take a couple of steps backward like he was getting a running start and uh, he just took
1: off and he flew through the air and just avoided the four steps and jumped right on the skipper's back and was growling and attacking. And um, he let go of his grip just long enough to throw the dog across the room. But, but Captain Jack came right back, came right
2: back at him, biting his ankles, biting his legs, attacking it. And it allowed me to get free. And I fell to the floor,
1: and I could hardly breathe. I was struggling for air, and I just started crawling on all fours through all the broken glass and stumbled up the the four stairs into the cockpit. And then the scout jumped in and
2: was helping her brother. I mean, they were both attacking him. And uh, I just went, crawled. I couldn't even get to my feet, but I crawled as fast as I could to... to the stern and there was my
1: backpack and i knew that it had my laptop my phone my chargers my passport which was crucial and a credit card i threw the backpack in the dinghy and i untied the line and just pushed it away and at that point the dogs just came running
2: to the stern and they were howling and the scout was crying and i knew that the only way to save save myself was to leave right then and I already knew I couldn't take him with me. I couldn't put him on a plane. then I, I knew I had to leave, but I just screamed to him, you know, I'll I'll get you home somehow. I'll get you home. And uh, I left. Stayed in an Airbnb near the airport for those two days. And then I boarded that plane and never looked back. So I got home and, and uh, had my surgery. Of course, didn't tell anybody anything, and uh, it's interesting because when I got
1: into the marina, I was leaving. I was sobbing, of course, crying. Of course, adults don't cry, but I was crying. I was gasping, gasping for air, and uh, called a cab. I asked the lady to call a cab, and the cab driver came. and It was about twenty minutes. I, I got online and got the Airbnb. And it was about twenty minutes from from the marina to the Airbnb. And um uh during that time I got a
2: text from the skipper and he said, Are you ready to come back to the boat? And I thought to myself, unbelievable, you know, but then I thought, Well, why wouldn't he think I was coming back? I came back all those other times. Why wouldn't I come back? But I didn't answer him. And uh but I got home and that began um my recovery and my uh my effort to get the dogs back. So I began therapy and began learning a lot. Uh I did indeed just so nobody won't worry, I did end up getting the dogs back. Uh, after six excruciating months of harassment from him.
1: Uh constant messages if uh, if you don't come back I'm going to throw the dogs overboard uh, if you don't come back I'm going to stop feeding them or
2: I'm going to leave them in a marina somewhere and uh, I just had to call his bluff and hope that he didn't mean it but uh, so uh um, finally started therapy and in doing so really began my recovery. And in the first session, uh, the therapist used the word captivity. And that word really didn't sit well with me at first because I said, you know,
1: I was not held captive. I, you know, I wanted to be there. I went there of my own free will. I wanted to go on this trip, you know, and, and she said, but, but you couldn't leave. I mean, he stranded you on the boat he isolated you from everything you knew and loved uh, you had no money <laughs> you couldn't leave
2: you were held captive and uh, so I finally kind of accepted that that word and then uh, of course that's when she told me also the word narcissist and uh, began to explain to me uh Why all this happened to me And why I kept going back It helped me to understand That uh, it really was I really was Psychologically and emotionally Controlled And uh, She also explained to me that As I got stronger
1: And he felt there was a real Threat of me leaving for good this
2: time uh, That's when he really Began to get abusive the escalated and got
0: visible. So it's a tale of two stories in a way. And maybe three, the old you, the you that was just transformed into somebody you were not. And then the, the escalation and, those are two different types of things you were dealing with and scary, uh, scary. Like the way you described you getting onto the boat and just the eeriness, how scary that is. Not knowing if you're going to leave that boat. Um, and you're here and you're telling your story and helping a lot of people not just the people that have gone through the physical uh, abuse but for the emotional abuse the subtleties of what happened to to help people who've never heard this type of stuff before to understand why someone will stay and for for you specifically a lot of the time most of the time we we have people that have a lot of different types of issues before they get into the relationship and that's what happened but yours is i like doing sto- stories like yours for the people that didn't have those things going into it you you were doing really well like you like yeah. you you had your values <laughs> and and within the relationship it all got twisted and it's unfortunate what happened to you, but your story is going to help a lot of people. So I really do want to thank you for, for being here uh, with us today. And you did a really, uh, it's a very tough story to tell and you did a really good job to communicate everything. So I really want to thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I do want to share a couple of the tools that my therapist gave me, because I think it's important, um, if there's time, Go for it. Um, uh, she asked me um, once, she said, "If what would you do if somebody treated your daughter the way I had been treated? And without, even, without hesitation, I said, I would kill him. I mean, he would be dead. It would be brutal and bloody, and I would probably go to prison for the rest of my life, and I would be okay with that. It would be worth it. And then she said, well, why is it okay for you to be treated that way? And, uh, of course, it's not. And I finally realized that. Um, and I had been try- so trying to take responsibility for all of his actions. Um, one day I told the therapist that a lot of it was my fault. You know, I provoked him. I got on his nerves. And she explained to me that she gets on her husband's nerves all the time, but he doesn't abuse her because of it. And, uh, that really resonated with me. Um, but the best, the, the number one contact for healing, I mean, uh, tool for healing is no contact and it wasn't until I finally got the dog's back and i was able to block him everywhere block his family block block his friends um even mutual friends that i cared about family of his that i cared about i blocked everybody and this is important because if he has an avenue to get in my ear or in my head he knows he knows what it takes to to break me down he broke me down piece by piece and uh i needed it was important to have no
2: contact and i, I just can't I think all those times I broke up with him, if I had blocked him, I probably wouldn't have come back (laughs) Uh, if he could
1: pull me back in. Um, Also, when you go that long without any kind of loving human contact, um, you know, no human touch of any kind, like I wasn't, I couldn't even hug a friend or uh, anything like that. Uh, She advised that I, you know, get weekly massages from
2: a female masseuse. Because it's important to uh, kind of have that human touch again as part of the healing. Because I felt so rejected by him. Um, And
1: um, also, she gave me the tool of calling him by label, you know, rather than using his name. Um, She also advised that I I join groups. Like, um, I joined a book club and uh, joined a sailing group. And just where it's not one-on-one, but a group of people. And she also told me, and this really hit home with me, that it's really important, and this is also why your podcast is so effective. It's important to tell your story and to confide in other people because the more details other people know, the less likely you are to go back. (laughs) And I think about those times when I wouldn't tell people we were broken up because I knew I would go back. Once I started telling people this story, I knew there was never any chance I would ever go back. Um, I also keep a gratitude journal so that I can every day write down the things that I'm grateful for, the positive affirmations, the positive things in life that's important, and uh, to keep a regular journal too
2: so that you can kind of see how far you've come. And also, I had a hard time when I got back because I didn't want to leave the house.
1: I think some of that was fear and some of it was just the months and months and months of isolation. But uh, I still have problems with that sometimes, and I have to force myself to take the dogs for a walk or call a friend and go have lunch or uh, just call somebody or walk around the neighborhood. Uh, I have to force myself sometimes because I got so used to that captivity. You don't want to be captive in your own home while you're trying to heal. So it's important to have human contact and be around people.
0: So, if you have any words of wisdom, or advice for others, what would it be?
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, even if there's no blood and no bruises, it's still abuse. Um, it's harder to define the psychological and emotional abuse because there's rarely any physical evidence, but even if it doesn't start out physical or violent, it can quickly escal- escalate like it did with me. Um, So just be clear. Cheating is abuse. Gaslighting is abuse. The silent treatment is cruel and unusual, inhumane abuse. Uh, Devaluing and discarding is abuse. And um, if everyone in your world who loves you thinks it's not a good idea to be
2: with this guy, maybe listen to that. (laughs) Maybe they're right because they really do love you and you know that.
0: Well, Tallulah. I I really want to thank you for being a guest on our show today. You, you know, you went through a lot, you're here, you're helping a lot of people and you know, you, you did a really good job today. So once again, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: And for those that want to be a part of our show and be a guest, just like Tallulah was today, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. At the top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. You click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page. On that page, read all of our instructions and then send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form page or or form on that page and press the submit button. And also at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we have our very own safe social network. So if you go to the top of the page, there's a button that says support group. You click on that button, it takes you to the network. In that network, we have our own forum boards where people post and people answer. We have our own Zoom meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday night and every other Thursday. And we have episodes that never made it to air. We have ad-free episodes. And if you just want to support our show, just join our support group. It helps us out a lot. So please do go. So please go do that at NarcissistApocalypse.com. And if you need even more support, please do go visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone because DomesticShelters.org offers you an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you are experiencing. They can connect you with local resources like shelters, and they can find ways to help you heal and move forward. So please do go to DomesticShelters.org to access this free resource today. And once again, thank you so much for being on our show Tulula and from Tulula and myself we hope you have a good night